So we've been watching, listening. Jesus has been announcing the kingdom, and he's been enacting the kingdom, showing what the kingdom looks like through healing, through miracles, through uh, making people whole again. And this kingdom, it's, it's the day of the world's healing when everything is made new and made well again. Everything in Mark's gospel, though, has been building up to this week, this story that we just read about and the story we read about outside. Particularly this moment, it's the king's entry to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the royal, the holy city, and it's where Jesus spends the last week of his life. But before we jump into chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 11, there's a quick story that occurs in the final verses of Mark 10 that sets up our passage in a really important way. There's a man named Bartimaeus. He's described simply as a blind beggar. And he is calling to Jesus while Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. The scene is fairly dramatic because Bartimaeus is calling out loudly and there's a crowd about. And so they're telling Bartimaeus to quiet down. And he only shouts louder until eventually Jesus calls for him. He calls him out of the crowd to come to him. Jesus asks Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, let me recover my sight. So Jesus tells him his faith has made him well and he heals him. Then Mark, immediately before he transitions to chapter 11, the passage that we'll be looking at, he gives this commentary. Immediately, he, Bartimaeus, recovered his sight, and he followed Jesus on the way. Sounds simple enough, but as you probably know, in the early days, Christianity was known by this short title, The Way. The fact that Bartimaeus' story is included here with his name, and not only his name, but this blind man, they know not only his name, but his family's name, it suggests that Bartimaeus stuck with Jesus, that he followed Jesus all the way to the end, and that his story became well-known enough throughout the church that Mark is even compelled to include it in his gospel. But aside from that, Mark is an artist, He's not just a historian. And an artist puts things a specific way for a specific reason. A man receives his sight just in time to see the last climactic week of Jesus' life. Mark is hinting to his readers, to us, in the most obvious way he can. In one sense, he's saying, if you don't see this, if you don't see all that Jesus is doing, and you don't see what it means... It's because your eyes are closed. It's because you're blind. You see, our job, my job, your job during Holy Week is to be like Bartimaeus. We're to follow Jesus on the way. We're to watch his every move. It's as if our eyes are to be glued to him. It's the first thing we've seen for so long. We can't remember the last time we were able to see something clearly. And yet... We see Jesus and we see what he does in this last week of his life. Put yourself in the shoes of Bartimaeus. Even if you don't know that you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is, claims or who he claims to be, even if you don't know, watch him. Keep your eyes glued to him this week. In verses 1 through 11, 
I want us to reflect on two things that Bartimaeus would have seen. Two things that he would have noticed and that we should notice. You see, when Bartimaeus watched Jesus, when we watch Jesus, we see power. But it's used in a very strange way. Now, Bartimaeus would have known a lot of cultural references that we don't catch if we don't look closely. Mark even slows down the narrative. The way a director puts a scene in slow motion to force an audience to to key in, to reflect on the scene, on the moment. Mark is piecing together details of geography, a tied-up cult, the journey, and Jesus' arrival at the temple. All these things are a way of drawing out the meaning in the scene. You see, within his own time and culture, Jesus riding on a donkey over the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and up to the Temple Mount, spoke more powerfully than words ever could of a royal claim. A right to the throne of God's people. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem for his enthronement ceremony to be crowned as the world's king. Bartimaeus would have known, for instance, that the prophet Zechariah said there would be a day that the Lord would stand on the Mount of Olives and he would free his people from political oppression. And that day, Zechariah says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. Jesus is claiming power. Power for political liberation. When Bartimaeus heard Jesus telling his disciples to retrieve a tied up colt on which no one has ever sat. He knows that such a colt is reserved only for sacred duties like carrying a king. And it wouldn't be a big deal, but the tying and loosing, these these little details, they're repeated five times within a couple verses. You know, when you're reading scripture, if you see simple things that are repeated over and over again like this, it's trying to bring out something. It just so happens that in Genesis, when Jacob blesses his children, there's a reference to a king who will come from the tribe of Judah. And it says his donkey will be tied. Now, this probably isn't the word choice you'd use to bless your children. But... Mark is trying to convey the weight of the event. Jesus is claiming his right to the throne. Now, when I think of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, going to claim his kingship, it helps me to ask if I'm the rightful king, but I have people contesting that, which Jesus does. If we've read the Gospels, we're aware of that. What do I ride in on? What kind of... What kind of approach do I make? For instance, if I could have Shadowfax, the lord of all the horses, capable of comprehending human speech faster than the wind, or Eeyore, the fearful downcast donkey who feasts on thistles, which would I take? Bartimaeus would have known about this verse from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus, who claims to be the king of the world, he has a choice. 
But he sticks to this path of humble savior. The the vocation that he's called to. The ends of power don't justify the means to it. Jesus sticks to his path. The disciples, they take off some of their clothes. They make an improvised saddle for Jesus to ride on. The people spread their clothes and branches on the road and they bless him as he comes into town, crying out, Hosanna. Bartimaeus, can you imagine being in his shoes? So recently blind, now witnesses a royal event, the inauguration of a king. Where does a king go when he enters Jerusalem, the holy city? Where else but the temple? It's the center of Israel's life and faith. And there are some remarkable parallels to this event in Israel's history. Well known to the people in that day. I'm going to be quoting here some ancient passages on some events like this. 200 years before, a man named Judas Maccabeus defeated the Syrian king, an Israelite oppressor. He returned to Jerusalem and cleansed the temple, rebuilt the temple, and the people waved ivy and palm branches as they sang hymns of praise. Sounds familiar? Josephus, a Jewish historian, he tells the story of another leader of a revolt. He returned in the state of a king to Jerusalem, went up to the temple in a pompous manner, and adorned with royal garments, had his followers with him in their armor. In some ways, the scene is quite similar, right? There's a crowd. People are shouting. They're lining the road with branches in their clothes. But in some ways, it's so utterly different. There are no weapons. There's no armor. There are no spoils from war. There's Jesus, a donkey, and some excited pilgrims. In some ways, it's a bit anticlimactic, isn't it? And there's an important factor we haven't considered yet. You know, all this event, it's well and good. We're excited about Jesus being enthroned. But what will Jesus do about the Romans, those who currently wear the crown? You see, Jesus isn't claiming a throne that's currently unoccupied. And for the enthronement ceremony, the passage ends in this ultimate anticlimax. Jesus enters the temple. Do you see verse 11? Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's pretty quiet for the end of an inauguration, isn't it? I mean, the president gets a full day and night. It doesn't even seem like anybody's left at the temple when Jesus goes. So... The king arrives in the city, but he isn't welcomed. (laughs) It's a society that's used to competitions for power, right? This tug of war back and forth. Well, Jesus will surprise them and he surprises us with a de facto power. Instead of muscling his way to the throne, grabbing for the crown, Jesus rides in humbly and calmly to claim what's rightfully his. Sure, there'll be a time for him to reveal his power. But as you've already heard, it won't be in the way that we expect. So you're Bartimaeus. Again, you're in his shoes. What questions are you asking? You're following Jesus so closely. How might it change you to see power play out in this way? Bartimaeus, he probably felt powerless, right? 
He was a blind beggar. Jesus seems to Bartimaeus to have all the power in the world at his fingertips. And yet he rides into Jerusalem to pick a fight that anyone in his right mind knows it will get him killed. What kind of power is this? Again, Bartimaeus will see Jesus crowned. He will see his power revealed in his resurrection. It's only in retrospect will he understand what kind of power this is. Only in retrospect can we understand that when the crowds cry Hosanna, they have no idea that the only way God can save them and become the king of their world is by dying for them. You see, our world is upside down. That's what Jesus wants us to see. And so we can't march to the top to have power. Quoting Dan Clare from the retreat, the only way to make it right is to march to the bottom. Go down, down, down to the bottom of the world to flip it. It's an odd sort of power, isn't it? Do you feel powerless? I mean, I don't know that this group, there might be some in here who have some sort of power. But for the most part, most of us probably don't feel extremely powerful. And then there are some of us in here who feel extremely powerless. Life has crippled us. And we don't feel like we have any sort of power. But it, could it be that we have the wrong ideas about power? You see, to follow Jesus, to watch him, means that we find our power, not in ourselves and in our status in the world, but in the power of King Jesus, who went to the bottom, died, and then revealed his power in the resurrection. So our power isn't based in us and in our status. It's based in Jesus. But the reality is that most of us do have more power than we realize. Whether in our home, our job, our school, our personal relationships, we have power to coerce people, to manipulate people, to inspire people, so on. How do you use your power? How do you use the influence you have in people's lives? Do you find yourself sometimes vying for more? Wanting more influence over people. Grabbing, trying to muscle people to achieve greater influence. Are you watching Jesus? Are you watching the way that he uses power? Following him on the way. You see, if we're watching Jesus, we learn that real power is actually service to the world. You know, this is God's call on his people from the beginning. He gave us power to multiply and to care for the earth and the place he puts us in our corners of the world. And it's through service that the shadow sides of power, oppression, manipulation, coercion. It's through service that those things are taken away, cut off. But the most naive of us even, we know that power, the so-called public service even can be twisted, right? So how do we get there where we can use our power or even our lack of power for service? When we watch Jesus at his enthronement, 
We not only see power, but we see him guided by love. We not only see this strange sort of power that goes down, but we see it guided by love, undergirded by love. There's one more passage Bartimaeus would have known that would help him understand this moment, help him frame it. It's Malachi 3, 1 through 2. It says, the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. Where does the king go when he enters the city, right? The temple. But then Malachi says, but who can endure the day of his coming? You see, the day that God arrived at the temple would not be the happy day that they all longed for. It would also be a day of judgment. Did you hear in the long extended passion reading we read that when Jesus died in Mark's gospel, it says that the temple curtain was torn in two. The temple is judged. It's found wanting. You see, what Jesus does when he goes into the temple is he looks around. It's this way, Mark says, of he's searching out the temple. He's inspecting it to see if it's the place it's supposed to be. The place where God's love is made manifest to the world. This was Israel's vocation, to be the people of God for the world, to bring the world into the life of God. But instead, they used their temple as a way of fortifying themselves against the world. You know, imagine Katie and I, I use us as an example because this won't happen, but we decided to build a beautiful, spacious new home. Our current home is 600 square feet. It would be wonderful to try to fit us all in there. Great challenge. But, but we decided to build a massive, just beautiful new home, elaborately decorated. And our genuine purpose in building it is to provide a place that people, especially those without family who are lonely, where they can come, find friendship, and they can enjoy beauty and lavish hospitality. That's our true motive. But once it's built, we're so concerned about people breaking things in the house or getting it dirty that we become obsessed with protecting our home to the point that we don't invite people over. We don't bring people in. And so the beauty that we've tried to create to share with people is never appreciated by anyone other than us. This is what happened with the temple. Instead of being a place where people could connect with God, it became a fortress to keep the world away from God. It was a gated neighborhood rather than a shelter to invite the world into. So Jesus' judgment on the temple is out of loving service to the world. They use their power to condemn the world, to shut it out. Jesus uses his power to open up the kingdom of God, to bring healing to the world. You see, love. Love for the world undergirds his power. It leads him into this self-sacrificing service. I'm going to close with a story from a novel, Cry the Beloved Country. It's about South Africa in the 1940s, a time when the native Africans lived under the law of Europeans. And the author tells the story of a white man who gave up his life to serve the country, particularly the natives. The character describes his privileged upbringing. And he says, One can read, as I read when I was a boy, the brochures about lovely South Africa, that land of sun and beauty and sheltered from the storms of the world. And one can feel pride in it and love for it and yet know nothing about it at all. 
It's only as one grows up that one learns that there are other things here than sun and gold and oranges. Only then that one learns of the hates and fears of our country. When he discovered these shadow sides of his country, that lots of people are getting built up on the work of people who are just going further down in society. He discovered these things. He said he chose to give his life to the service of the country. Not because I'm noble or unselfish, but because life slips away. And then he uses this beautiful phrase. Because I need for the rest of my journey a star that will not play false to me. A compass that will not lie. A star that won't play false to me. A compass that will not lie. I wonder if you feel powerless like Bartimaeus. Weak. Crippled. Or if you feel powerful. You see, Jesus offers hope and direction to both of those. By watching Jesus, our power or powerlessness is steered to its proper end. It's through Him loving the world. Serving the world. Our corner of the world. Whether it's Harrisonburg. Whether it's a public school. Whether it's at your law firm, whether it's at your college, it's serving with love. It's caring for the hates and fears of the people in the place where we live. You see, the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus that Bartimaeus got to watch that day as he went into Jerusalem, watching him, this is the star that won't play false. It's the compass that won't lie. Are you watching Jesus this week? Will you commit just for Holy Week? Will you give it a shot? Will you watch him? And will you see where following Jesus might take you? Let's pray. 